some of what will be going on in terms of it being a radio and television broadcast, and um, above all, to talk to you about your role as members of the audience. Um, if you are a new time, a first timer here, you'll see at your seat there's a keypad, and that keypad is there because in the debate itself, you, the live audience, act as the judges. We're going to ask you to vote twice on our proposition, which is, as you see behind me, Grandma's Benefits in Peril Junior's Future. We're going to ask you at the very beginning of the debate, once we launch, to vote on that motion, where you stand on it. And the way you use the keypad is that if you agree with the motion, you'll push number one. And if you disagree, you push number two. And if you're undecided, you push number three. And then again, at the end of the debate, we'll ask you to vote again but this time we're asking you to debate, uh, to vote on a slightly different thing. We're trying to ask you to vote on who you think actually presented the better argument tonight, aside from your personal conviction. But, so we use your personal conviction as a baseline, but we'd like you to judge who actually presented the better arguments. And then the team that has the largest move in percentage is the team that's declared our winner. So you pick the winners. The other thing that you do as audience in the middle of the debate, after we have formal opening statements by each side, in the middle of the debate, for about 35 minutes, 40 minutes, the debaters have more of a free-for-all and they can address each other. And I ask them questions. And I also want to come to you to ask them questions. And the way that will work is um, I'll announce it's question time. The house lights will come up. I won't be able to see you if you're beyond the row of the cameras because of the way the lights are set up. So the folks down in front and on the left and right, I can see. You raise your hand. A microphone will be brought to you. We'll ask you to stand up. Uh, state your name and then holding the microphone about a fist distance from your mouth to ask you to put a question to the debaters. Now, this gets a little bit tricky for some folks. Um, <laughs> people who have been here before know what I'm talking about. Um, by question, we really would like you to put a question to the debater because we don't want you in the position of debating with them. They're the ones who are debating. But we want you to ask a question that is terse, about 30 seconds or so. Give it some thought. I'm okay with you stating a premise with a period at the end of that, but the next part should have a question mark at the end. And it really should be on our topic. Try to use your question in a way that moves us towards understanding their arguments on this particular motion. It's very tempting to get a little bit off topic. And if, if I feel that the question will, will take us in the wrong direction or is repetitive, uh, I'll, I'll politely decline and move on to another question. Now, the reason for the microphone, a fist distance from your mouth, um, our debates are carried on uh, hundreds of NPR stations, more than 200 NPR stations across the nation, including here in New York on WNYC. And they're also carried by um, Channel 13 in New York on television, which is what the cameras are for. And um, so we need to hear you clearly, but we also need to ask you if you have anything electronic. I'm sorry to make it feel like an airplane, but we need you to shut it off because there are so many devices in the room uh, and wireless microphones that will interfere with the signal. So we need you to ask, ask you to shut it off entirely. Uh, unless there's a few of you tweeting about the debate, we're happy to get the word out, and a few of you won't hit that critical mass. So if you're tweeting, fine, but otherwise we'd really like to ask you to turn it off. And I'll try to remember to tell you at the end of the debate, the debate to turn it on again. Um, it reminds me of something we used to do in television. Whenever we would go to somebody's house and interview them in their kitchen, their refrigerator would always make a noise, and so we would ask them to turn off their refrigerator. And the number of times that we left, forgetting to tell them to turn their refrigerator back on early in the morning, resulted in catastrophe. So I met a cameraman once who always had the habit of putting his car keys in the refrigerator when he asked them to turn it off so he could never leave 
So I can't give you my car keys, but I'll try to remember. And the last thing is, because it's a radio broadcast, I'm going to be repeating a lot of... I'm going to ask... We want to hear from you. We want to hear your applause. We want to hear if you like, if you like what somebody's saying. We want to have that sense that this is a live room. If that, that, that sound gives the debaters information on how they're doing. The radio audience, when they hear the debate, will, will know that you're here. So you can applaud lines or, or, or the opposite of that. And um, I'll be repeating a lot of things for the radio broadcast as we come back from, from breaks. I'll be telling you again and again what my name is and where we are, things like that that you know. And every now and then I'm going to ask you to applaud, um, specifically in the beginning when I'm introducing the debaters the very first time. I'll gesture towards them at that point. I appreciate it if you could give them a round of applause. So, oh, sorry. I have to put the wire in my head that tells me what all of my smart ideas are. Oh, I'm much brighter now. Okay. I'm going to start all over because it'll be much better. Um, so we're going to begin in just a couple of minutes and enjoy yourselves and, uh, um, and, and vote well and wisely. Thank you. Well, we're going to begin right now. So I'd like to invite and welcome our debaters to the stage. And there, there would be no Intelligence Squared U.S. if not for the beneficence of our founder, the chairman of the Rosencrantz Foundation, Mr. Robert Rosencrantz. Well, welcome to all of you. Um, as, as the regulars in this series know, typically I use the first few minutes before each debate to outline the arguments on uh, both sides. Tonight I'm going to do something a little different and share with you the reasons we thought that framing a debate on entitlements in intergenerational terms could shed some new light on a familiar uh, topic. American politics has focused uh, endlessly, if inconclusively, on health care, on the uninsured, on jobs, on entitlements, and on the deficit. Fault lines have been drawn between liberals and conservatives, between rich and poor. But the intergenerational aspects of these issues have barely figured in the debate. One shocking statistic is that 37% of those who came of age in this millennium are unemployed. When consumers lack the confidence to spend, when businessmen lack the confidence to invest and to hire, it is the young that suffer most. The health insurance debate focused on the uninsured. But think for a moment about how health insurance is priced. Almost everywhere, the young pay the same premium as their more illness-prone elders. A massive subsidy for the old paid for by the young. Tens of millions of young people quite reasonably said no thanks to health insurance until the government mandated that they say yes. Medicare and Social Security, Granny's benefits, are some 35% of the federal government, uh, federal government budget and are projected to increase to 40% in the next decade as the baby boomers retire. Health care costs are running around 16% of uh, GNP compared to 9% in other developed countries, and we have no better health outcomes to show for it. 
end-of-life care, the heroic measures taken in the final three months before a predictable end, are around 25% of total health uh, expenditures. We simply don't have the money to afford the health care system we've got. When households want to consume something today that the, it can't pay for or doesn't choose to pay for, it can borrow money and pay it back with interest in the future. Or it can borrow money and stiff its creditors through default, repaying debt with pennies on the dollar. It's no different for governments. If they won't cut spending and they won't raise taxes, they can incur debt, which the young will pay for, with higher taxes later, or they can stiff their creditors through inflation, repaying the debt with devalued currency. Young people are paying the costs of sluggish growth today, and they'll be paying the costs of profligate government tomorrow. And neither political party has anything constructive to say. The Democrats don't want to cut entitlements, and the Republicans don't want to raise taxes to pay for them. Perhaps that's why young people vote less than their elders. Tonight they can make up for that lapse by voting twice. Before the debate and after. After they've heard tonight's stellar panelists address the little-noticed issues of America's intergenerational divide. And with that, it's my privilege to turn the evening over to John Donvan and our outstanding group of panelists. Thank you. And I'd just like to invite one more round of applause for Robert Rosencrantz, please. True or false, grandma's benefits imperil Junior's future. That's what we're here to debate. Another verbal joust from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Where our motion is this, grandma's benefits imperil Junior's futures. Two teams will argue that proposition from opposite sides, for it and against it. Only one team wins, and you, our live audience, will be choosing the winner. They will be playing for your votes. So let's meet our panel. First, a lifelong Republican who is encouraging her party to get back to basics, Fox News commentator Margaret Hoover. Her debating partner is a real estate investor and media mogul, a chairman of U.S. News and World Report, Mort Zuckerman. Opposing them at the facing table, a doctor who went on to become chairman of the Democratic National Committee, the former governor of Vermont, Howard Dean. And joining him, an economic analyst and author of the book Age of Greed and editor of Challenge magazine, Jeff Madrick. So this is a debate. It's a contest. There will be winners and there will be losers. And you, our live audience here at the Skirball Center, will be making the choice who wins and loses. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote twice, once before and once again after the debate. And the team that has changed the most minds in the course of the debate will be declared our winner. So let's go to the preliminary vote. You all have keypads at your seat. Our motion is this. Grandma's benefits imperil Junior's future. If you agree with the, moment, with the motion, if you are with this team, push number one. If you disagree, you're with this team, push number two. And if you are undecided, push number three. And what will happen is uh, the system will lock in the votes. If you feel that you made an error, just correct it and the system will lock in your last vote, and 
Remember, again, at the end of the debate, we're going to ask you to vote a second time. And the team that has changed the most minds, has moved their numbers the most in the course of the debate, will be declared our winner. <clears throat> so on to round one. Round one, opening statements by each debater in turn, uninterrupted. They will last seven minutes each. And first, speaking for our motion, Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future, I'd like to welcome to the lectern Mort Zuckerman. Mort Zuckerman is a man you can make your way to the lectern. Um, and Mort, as you go there, I just want to explain to our audience, I'm sure they all know who you are, but you're a man who started in academia and then began to build things. You built buildings, and from those buildings you built a fortune, and from that fortune you became a media mogul. You are the uh, owner of the U.S. Daily News. You are the editor-in-chief of U.S. News and World Report. On the fortune list of uh, wealthiest Americans, you do not own fortune, but on that magazine list you are number 188. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you did own it. Would you get to tweak the numbers a, a little bit? They, they were referring to my age, not ah. my rank. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, arguing for the motion first, Mort Zuckerman. Well, as you've just heard, uh, America's uh, in very difficult shape. And the difficult truth that we must face is that uh, we are uh, on the verge of an exploding public sector debt. Uh, that can have a, a very, very negative effect on our economic future. As one cynic put it, um, our future isn't what it used to be. Uh, Social Security was bid, built, uh, born rather, amid harsh times uh, of the Great Depression, marked by unemployment, homelessness, and even starvation. We then made a deal with the American workers, to wit, that nobody who paid into the system would be left empty-handed. To this was added Medicare health insurance in the mid-1960s and the protection against inflation in the 1970s. These initiatives changed the economics of old age. In a mere four decades, poverty rates among the elderly, which had been three or four times that of the general population, fell below the rates for younger Americans. To this day, Social Security still means the difference between poverty and economic security for millions of retirees, children, and many American workers. It is the primary source of income for two-thirds of older Americans and the single most important anti-poverty program for children, millions of whom live in households supported by disability survivor or retiree beneficiaries. It creates intergenerational benefits as parents and grandparents can live independently of their working children and often become the child care providers for children while the parents work. When social uh, Security began making monthly distributions in 1940. There were 160 workers for every senior receiving benefits. Today there are about three workers, and within two decades there will be two. Demographics are destiny. The message could not be clearer. Social Security needs fixing. It has been fixed before. Social Security taxes have been raised 40 times since the program began, most recently in 1983. The initial Social Security tax was 2%, split between the employer and the employee, capped at $3,000 of earnings, which made for a maximum tax of $60. Today, the tax is approximately 13%, capped at $106,800 for a maximum tax of $13,234, a multiple of 80 times the original tax. So what is to be done? Despite the natural sympathy for those looking forward to their retirement, we cannot avoid the issue of Social Security insolvency. 
Here are some options to deal with this problem. One, gradually raising the retirement age to reflect the longevity increases that have already taken place. In the future, retirement age should be indexed automatically to rise with longevity. Two, raising employer and employee payroll taxes by up to 1% each. Three, eliminating or gradually raising the cap on taxable um, payroll income, reflecting the fact that higher incomes are rising faster than the Social Security taxable earnings. Four, increasing the earliest eligibility age, EEA as it's called, from 62 to 65, which alone would extend the trust fund solvency by about five years. Current retirees would be unaffected, and exceptions would be made for Americans who cannot work longer due to injury, ill health, or other causes. Modest reductions in benefits for wealthier recipients should also be considered. We must, address, we must address these challenges. Soon, or grandma's welfare will, in fact, undermine the quality of life for her grandchildren and give meaning to the phrase, which my partner and I, I found out, will both quote, blessed are the young, for they shall inherit the national debt, I might add. That was originally stated by my partner's grandfather. The greatest risk facing America's fiscal future comes from the projected increases in Medicaid and Medicare spending that could raise the deficits dramatically in the next couple of decades. Arithmetic still matters. Medicaid now pays for both health and long-term care for roughly 55 million Americans. It finances more than one-third of all births in the United States and pays the cost of almost two-thirds of the people in nursing homes. The federal government underwrites 50 to 77 percent of the cost depending on the income level of each state. Even so, Medicaid is the second biggest and fastest growing category of state spending. Costs are up more than 60 percent in the last five years and are expected to exceed $450 billion this year and to keep growing by about 8 percent annually for the next decade. In the next, by the mid-1930s, uh, 2030s, the 65 and over population will nearly double, and health care costs, which have been rising far faster than worker productivity since the end of World War II, may be completely out of control, resulting in a tidal wave of federal spending. The basic fact is that the first baby boomer statistically retired on January 1 of this year, but there are 79 million more of them. Multiply that by estimated annual benefits of $40,000 that they will be receiving, and you're looking at $3 trillion a year just for that portion of the population. Erskine Bowles, the co-chair of the bipartisan Simpson-Bowles Commission, put it well. This is a fiscal crisis that is completely predictable and from which there is no escape. This concern has been uh, uh, shared by many, many institutions of Post, the Washington Post, the uh, Fed Chairman Bernanke, and countless others. Now, the only way to cut entitlement costs is to cut entitlement costs. The current programs, as they play out, will be unsustainable without giant tax increases or huge cuts in other government programs. We should remember, as we address this problem, that less is enough if it comes earlier. So the sooner, the better. Now, this is a nation founded on opportunity, not entitlement, on thrift, not conspicuous consumption, on stewardship and not living for today, but taking steps to make sure that we are creating a better tomorrow such that future generations would have as much or more opportunity uh, and a better standard of living. To keep these entitlements under fiscal control is about keeping the American dream alive. I know the American dream because I'm one of the people who was attracted to this country many years ago from Canada, where 50% of the graduating class of American universities moved to the United States, attracted as we were 
by the remarkable energy and optimism and mobility and upward mobility of this country, not to mention the president, John Kennedy. Today, it is Canada's government that has shown best how to manage these kinds of way, these kinds of problems as they work their way through perilous economic times without threatening its future. But much as I like Canada, I don't want my children moving there because of the narrowing of opportunity at home. Mort Zuckerman, I'm sorry, your time is up. <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Mort Zuckerman. Our, our motion is Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future. And here now to speak against the motion, Jeff Madrick. He is the editor of Challenge Magazine. He uh, is a thinker and a writer who comes to the topic of economics from the left. His uh, most recent great pithy statement to, to be attributed to him is the last thing we read, need right now is a tax cut. Um, he wrote a book called The Age of Greed, which turns on its head the fictional Gordon Gecko's notion that greed is good because greed is... Uh, greed is not good. Self-interest is okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, greed is Jeff Madrick. Now, I have a lot to correct in what Moritz said, not least of which is why he came to the U.S. Canada is very cold. <laughs> I'm delighted to be here with Mort Zuckerman, Margaret Hoover, and, of course, Dr. Governor and Chairman Howard Dean. Uh, I'm especially delighted here to be here to defend Social Security and Medicare. They are two of the greatest achievements of any kind made in America. Mort's listed. Please. Mort's listed why Social Security is, is so important. How many elderly it keeps out of poverty. It accounts for 80% of 40% of those who are elderly. It account, accounts for well more than half of half of those who are elderly income. Medicare, think of what the elderly would be doing without Medicare. Uh, how could they possibly be paying $12,000 and $15,000 a year for health insurance? But you know some of this, and you're gonna say, well, let's cut them back a little bit for the sake of fiscal responsibility. We're gonna go into that in some detail. But the, let me remind you and let me make this very clear. Social Security and Medicare are not outrageously generous programs. The average Social Security payment is $14,000. Poverty for two, the poverty line for two is $13,000. Medicare, a typical employer-sponsored uh, health plan will cover 88% of health, uh, of health needs. Medicare, according to independent actual, actuarial studies, will cover 76% of Medicare. Big deductibles, big co-payments, not a gift. The elderly are not living wonderful lives because of Social Security and Medicare. If they're living wonderful lives, it's because they made a fortune coming from Canada to America. <laughs> Let me get to the point. Let me cut to the chase, because I had a lot to precede this. Let's be very clear about what Social Security adds to our future debt. In fact, let me step back a moment. Social Security and Medicare have nothing to do with the current levels of debt. Nothing to do with it. The current levels of debt are a function of the Great Recession, brought on, in my view, mostly 
due to the excesses of Wall Street, the Bush tax cuts in the early 2000s, and the spending on the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Medicare Part, <laughs> Medicare Part D contributed some, but less than any one of those three factors. We don't have debt because of Social Security and Medicare, but what about the future? You would think, given what Mort says, that Social Security accounts for about half of what's going to happen to us. What do you think the benefits of Social Security as a proportion of GDP are going to rise to, as a proportion of our total income? They're now about 5% of our total income. They're going to rise to a maximum of 6% of our total income, 1% of GDP. You think we can't afford that? You think Social Security is going insolvent on the basis of that? And you know what? Even if we don't raise taxes to cover Social Security, Social Security is not going insolvent. The Social Security Administration and the CBO make a forecast. It is a conservative forecast of economic growth. Even if we do nothing, and if I leave one message with you, it should be this one. If we do nothing, we will still have 78% of our benefits paid by the current system. Medicare is a different story. But Medicare spending is not going up in the next 10 years significantly as a proportion of GDP. It's going up after that. And why? We hear a lot of alarmist talk about the aging of the population. True, there will be more aging compared to workers. Workers will have a harder time paying for the aged. But that's not what's driving Medicare costs up. That's not what's going to drive it sky high. It's the health care system, an inefficient health care system. And I'm going to leave it, that to my partner, Dr. Dean, to discuss how inefficient it is. Summarizing quickly on those two issues, we can handle Social Security easily. It is not going insolvent. That is inflammatory, misleading, and incorrect rhetoric. It up, if I'm getting a little upset, I think I have cause. We still pay 78% of, of liabilities, even if we do nothing. What can we do? Oh, we, we can uh, raise the cap, as Mark suggested. We can raise um, the payroll taxes somewhat, 0.1% a year to 7.2%. And you know what? All the studies, all the surveys say people want to do that. Medicare, we have to reform health care. And I hope Mort, Margaret, and Governor Dean put all their effort into reforming health care because that is what can undo America, not these entitlement programs. One last major point. We are a low-taxed nation. We are almost the lowest-taxed nation in the OECD of all rich nations. Federal income tax comes to only 15% of GDP these days. Used to come to 20% when George W. Bush took office. Can we raise taxes? You bet we can. Ah, somebody's going to say from the other side, but that will slow economic growth. I leave you with one fact in my last 39 seconds. George W. Bush cut taxes sharply in 2001 and 2003. He promised growth and he promised jobs. And all those people who talk about the poor job creators whose taxes we have to cut, consider this. We had the slowest rate of GDP growth after the Bush tax cuts from trough to peak.
I mean before the devastation of, two, of late 2007, of the Great Recession. The slowest rate of GDP growth, 2001 to 2007, in any comparable period in post-World War II history. And job growth was even worse. Almost no jobs were created after the Bush tax cuts. Jeff Medrick, your time is up. Thank you. So we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Grandma's benefits imperil Junior's future. You've heard two of the statements, and now on to the third. I'd like to introduce Margaret Hoover, a Fox News political commentator. She is the author of a book called American Individualism, which spells out her vision for a Republican Party that gets back to its roots. The, the title, I understand, you lifted from an author in the past who would be whom? I punked it from Herbert Hoover. And your relationship to Herbert Hoover? He was my great-grandfather. Though so I never knew him, he passed away 13 years before I was born. But you're bringing us the past and the future tonight. I found, surprisingly, Hoover channels the millennial ethos. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Margaret Hoover. Thank you, John, and thanks to Bob Rosencrantz for the opportunity to participate here tonight on a stage with such uh, distinguished public figures. I am well aware that I am the junior on the stage, and as such, I will argue in favor of this motion from the perspective of junior, whose future is imperiled by grandma's benefits. The juniors in this argument are the millennials. This is the rising generation in America, 30 and unders, born at the beginning of the Reagan era to the end of the Clinton presidency. At 33 years of age, I am on the cusp of this rising generation and have been paying into Social Security and Medicare for eight years. I am told that as long as I pay into the system, the system will be there for me. By the time I reach my full retirement age of 67, 34 years from now in 2045, I'll expect to receive the same benefits equal to that which I paid into the system. And if I have planned on this, I will find my future severely imperiled because eight years before I retire, the Social Security Trust Fund will have been depleted. I will be surprised to discover that this trust fund was actually a myth, that it was in fact just a surplus of IOUs that had been lent out to other agencies of government to pay for their expanding programs. Beginning in 2037, Social Security will have to rely solely on the revenues from payroll taxes, which will be insufficient to cover the benefits promised to me and my generation. In addition, under current law, because of program insolvency, benefits will have to be cut by 23% or payroll taxes raised 30%. This sudden adjustment imperils the millennials' economic future, affecting the poorest of those who are already dependent upon benefits. The rude awakening is that Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid were never set up to, as pay-as-you-go. They were never set up as trust funds. They are pay-as-you-go programs. The federal government does not and never has saved payroll tax revenues. These have always been generational transfer programs from workers to retirees, such that the benefits for grandma come directly out of the pockets of junior. 
By the time the first millennials reach their 40s in 2021, the cost of Medicare alone will be greater than our country's total defense spending. Put all together with baby boomers hitting retirement, grandmas living longer, medical costs spiraling upwards, Social Security, Medicare expenses will consume about 12% of the nation's economic output in 2035, triple what it was in 1971. I would be remiss also if I didn't mention what we all know, which is that large parts of the federal budget are being financed by debt, 42 cents on every dollar. And this debt, too, must be paid back. By 2021, interest payments on the debt will be a bigger portion of the budget than our discretionary funding, which will contribute to a crowding out of spending in education, infrastructure, national defense, and everything else that might be considered investment in our future. We all know this is unsustainable, and the need for reform is obvious. This is not an appropriate legacy for grandma to leave to junior because it defies the social contract in which each generation strives to leave the country better off than it inherited it from its parents. We need to revise the social contract to reflect the changes in our society in a way that keeps the faith with grandma, does not cut her benefits, on which she's now relying, but stops making promises to Junior that we simply cannot keep. We can have a generous, compassionate social welfare program for the elderly, which is consistent with a dynamic economy in which workers have multiple employers over their careers, stay active and healthy in the workforce into their 70s. This will require removing disincentives to longer careers, asking the more successful to shoulder more of their own retirement costs, and health costs, and building stronger incentives for innovation and efficiency into our health system. Change is coming one way or the other, and it will either be deliberate, careful, and well thought out, or it will be imposed by a chaotic and indiscriminate way. If we take it upon ourselves to correct the, con the America's social contract and be proactive, there will be nothing to fear from these changes. This is the normal process of each generation of Americans improving upon the strong institutions built by earlier generations. And the millennial generation, the juniors of tonight's motion, want to be part of that solution. You are likely to hear from our opponents an unwavering commitment to early 20th century social insurance models and an inability to adapt them and their spirit to the 21st century economy and population. They may accuse us of trying to take grandma's benefits away from her or suggest that we believe that the federal safety net was a mistake in the first place. This is not true. The only people who are talking about taking away grandma's benefits are those who want to scare seniors for political reasons. They may argue as well that entitlements, the benefits about which we are debating tonight, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, are not the problem at all, that the real problem for Junior is skyrocketing health care costs. This is a tricky tactic intended to shift the focus of the debate. Health care reforms are an important subject, just not the subject of tonight's debate. 
The system that pays grandma's benefits is imperiling Junior's future by prom making promises to Junior that it cannot keep, by paying for these benefits through borrowing that contributes to mounting national debt, 14 trillion and counting, thus imperiling Junior's fiscal and economic future. We encourage you to vote in favor of the motion. Thank you, Margaret Hoover. Our motion is Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future. And here to speak against the motion, Howard Dean. He's a doctor who left medicine to enter politics. He ran for president in 2004. He has served as a chairman of the Democratic National Committee. And you were governor of Vermont for 12 years. And I want to talk to you about, very briefly about your 12 years as governor of Vermont. You came in to office with a $62 million deficit. While there, you instituted a program that extended health care coverage to most of the kids in the state, and you cut taxes. I so did. does that mean it's all easy to Should do? Should I be on the other side of this yeah. debate? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Howard Dean. Thank you. Um, first of all, I hope to be able to match Margaret. She actually stuck to the time, and that's not so easy. Um, she also did something else that, is, that you all have been victimized by for some time, and that is frame the debate in such a way that we're focused on giving people big tax cuts at the same time we're focused on cutting benefits. The truth is that we do not have a Medicare and Social Security problem in terms of what is costing us. What we have is bad management, politicians who won't talk to each other and work with each other, lousy tax policy, selfishness as a public policy, and growing inequality in America. This is not an issue about tax. So a, a few facts. Social Security is, in fact, a trust fund. There are $2.6 trillion in the tax fund. They are invested in treasuries in the Social Security fund. By 2020, there will be $3.5 trillion in the Social Security trust fund. Set aside, put aside by you for spending by you. Is there a shortfall in Social Security? Yes. Is that the single biggest problem of our bankruptcy, of, of our de uh, deficit? No. You know what the singest, single largest factor in our national debt is? This is the CBO. This is not some left-wing Democratic think tank like MSNBC. 60% of the deficit in 2019 is due solely to the Bush tax cuts. 60%. Now, that's a fact. I'm not, if you don't want to raise taxes, be my guest. But if this is a debate between raising taxes and dealing with Social Security, you should know that. Because these, neither of these problems is the big problem. The problem is not Social Security. I agree with Mort. There's a lot of things you can do about this. Uh, Margaret mentioned some good things you can do about Social Security. We have to tweak Social Security. Yes, it's not a big problem. Medicare. Medicare is not the problem. Its costs are out of control. There's a reason for that. The costs of the entire health care system in the United States of America are out of control. There's no way you're going to control Medicare costs without doing something about the rest of the health care costs. And that means we have to have real health care reform, which we have not had. And the real health care, the real health care reform has not taken place either under Romney care slash Obamacare or whatever the Republicans want to call it these days. It has not taken place because the entire reimbursement system of the health care, Medicare or private sector, encourages me to do as much as I can to you, whether it works or not. And the more I do, the more I get paid. We need to fundamentally get rid of the fee for service system, capitate care. Some of the things in the health care bill, such as accountable care organizations, vertically integrated care, will solve the Medicare problem, period. We do not need to privatize either one of those programs. And for those of you on Social Security, could you imagine 
if President Bush had had his way, we'd privatize Social Security shortly before 2008. I don't think many of you would have been able to afford the $40 ticket that you paid to get in here. So let us not allow the right wing to focus on these two programs with the idea that we ought to reform them. Let's reform our tax system so we have a more equal, more fair society, and then we can talk about how to deal with these systems. Now, what can, in fact, we do? We talked a little bit about how to fix Medicare. We do need to start paying people uh, in a global budget. Pay, them a, pay the hospitals and the doctors a flat fee for taking care of people. Then all of a sudden, guess what? Prevention will pay. Nobody invests in prevention today, except for Kaiser or self-insured major corporations. We can change all that. There need to be some reforms, but we do not need to make this a private system, and we do not need to withdraw government support from this system. We, do need, we don't even need to reduce benefits. We do need to change the way we pay for health care, not just to save Medicare and older people. We need to save business by doing this. We need to save individuals by doing this. We fundamentally have to reform health care. Let's not use Medicare and Social Security as the victim. The fact of the matter is that young people inevitably are going to end up as my age. And when they do, they're not going to want these these programs to disappear. The elderly used to be the poorest group in America until in 1926 the farm states where the depression started began Social Security, which is then spread to a national program by Roosevelt in 1926, I mean, 19, uh, in 1933. So this is a core program. We just need to make it work and we just need some mild tweaks. Healthcare needs a lot of tweaks, but the whole system needs tweaks, not simply. Medicare, and we should stop victimizing Medicare for the sake of keeping our taxes absurdly low. The fact is people need to pay, pay their fair share in America, and the Bush tax cuts need to sunset. You know, when the taxes were at Bill Clinton's rate, the economy was a whole lot better than it is now, and I wouldn't mind going back to those taxes and paying my fair share at all. In, in conclusion, the solution to this problem is not to return the elderly to poverty. The elderly programs do not harm young people in this country because if we did not have them, you would be living with them so you could take care of them at the same time as you tried to make your own lives. These programs were put in for a reason. It is a social compact. Now, I'll close with the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Taxes are the price we pay for civilization. And for those who continue to want to avoid them more and more, seeking tax cuts when we already have enormous deficits, you will end up paying the price. Because, and I say this not as somebody who's a liberal or on the left, I say this as a social observer, there is no society in the face of the earth, now or in the past, which has not collapsed when the gap between the wealthiest and the poorest in that society has become too big. We are going down a very dangerous road, and cutting Medicare and, Medic and Social Security are the last things we should be doing, not the first. Thank you, Howard Dean. And that concludes opening statements and round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion being argued is Grandma's benefits imperil juniors' futures. Now, remember, keep in mind how you voted at the top of the evening, because once again, at the end of the debate, we'll ask you to vote again on the quality of the arguments and the team that has moved its numbers the most will be declared our winner. Now on to round two. This is where the debaters address each other directly, and they answer questions from the audience and from me. 
We're at the Scarborough Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. We have two teams of two debating this motion, Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future. You've heard the art side arguing for this motion, saying that basically we're looking at a mathematical inevitability. The money is simply going to run out, and that at the rate we're going, Social Security and Medicare are either going to break or they're going to break us, and that changes, significant changes are needed to avoid that outcome. The side arguing against them is saying that that doomsday scenario is greatly exaggerated, that in fact these programs are good programs, that they are generally well managed, and that the problem is essentially uh, at the core of medical expenses in the system, and that Social Security itself is as structured, not really uh, in, in fiscal danger. So I want to go first to the side that's arguing against the motion and, and bring up the number that your opponent, Margaret Hoover, brought up, which is 2037, the year 2037, at which point, as she says, it is projected that the trust fund that was set up for Social Security is going to run dry. And this is not a number she's pulled out of thin air. This is 2036, 2037, 38, around there. It's generally thought that that actuarial prediction is pretty pretty good, pretty on. So I want to put to your side, what about that? What about the stark fact that that money will be gone? It w uh, let me Jeff take Mandel. that. Um, at that point, Social Security, remember, Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system. And, it, and, Margaret, it's not a rude awakening. It was always known to be a pay-as-you-go system. It was never said to be a trust fund. Uh, when that money runs out, money will still be coming in from workers. Enough money will be coming in, as I said earlier, to pay according to the same estimates that said the trust fund would run out in 2037, to pay 78% of current benefits. So when people say, and you hear it all the time, and I'd like to ask Mark what he means by insolvency and Social Security. When people say Social Security is going insolvent, and then they tell us, and we better cut the benefits now in order to save it. Well, the benefits are going to be cut, and they may even be cut less without doing anything than you would like to do now. That's, what's happened. That's what happens right, when the trust fund runs out. So, so no one is saying we should cut benefits now, especially to the seniors to whom we have promised. There's no one out there saying that except the AARP who's trying to scare grandma into continuing to vote not to not vote for entitlement reform, which is imperiling Junior's future. I, I want to go back to this notion that 78% of benefits will be paid out, because when you think about it, that's not a good deal. I put in money my entire lifetime, and then presuming that the benefits are going to be there, I can only expect to get 78% out. That's, that's just not a good deal for the worker. Uh, so, did I answer the question? Yeah, I think so. Well, let me come back to very quickly yeah. respond. You say nobody's calling for reductions in benefits, but of course, all kinds of people are currently calling for reductions in benefits. Ooh. Simpson Bowles, when you raise the they, they're talking about reductions when you raise benefits, but when no you raise the retirement age, it's a cut in benefits. If you raise the requirement age, eligibility retirement age from 65 to 67, that's a cut in benefits of 13%. Some of the proposals out there cut benefits, in fact, on 40% of men, some of the proposals cut benefits by 20%. These are proposals that are already out there. This is not a fiction. More, more People are, are proposing that. More that, that. That's not the only proposals. 
Those are only the only proposals that are out there. And we're basically talking about people just coming into the system, having to deal with it. I mean, the fact is, uh, when uh, FDR introduced Social Security, the average expect life expectancy was 62. It's now 80. Uh, you don't uh, have a system that uh, doesn't take that into account unless you just want the system to go bust. So you've got to find some way to correlate revenues and ultimately payouts. Uh, so I don't think these are unreasonable things to take, have some way of, and we've done it. We've done it many, many times, okay? We did it in 1983 when Tip O'Neill as the Speaker of the House and Reagan, President Reagan got together and did that, okay? They improved the fiscal stability of that thing. We want this thing to work. If you can guarantee that this thing is going to work by one magical system or another, great. But you can't. Howard Dean. Not, not with all the people who are going to be retiring, the 79 million people who Howard are going to be boomers. Let me just remind everybody that the question is, do grandma benefits grandma's benefits imperil a junior's future or whatever? Um, the answer is no. They clearly don't. So we're talking here about making some adjustments. Let me tell you what adjustments. I, I, I object to Mort's view of even phraseology, that the system will go bust. Jeff has said it will not, and Margaret's actually said 78% of the benefits is a bad deal, but that is not the same as going bust. Secondly, here's what needs to be done. Number one, wealthy pay taxes on their benefits. I think that's a good thing. It's a better way of me than means testing. I think it's a good thing. Those taxes should go back into the Social Security Trust Fund, not go into the general fund. Number two, no matter how attractive they may be politically, do not give payroll tax cuts. That money goes into Social Security. Right now we're simply adding it to the national debt and then putting it back in the Social Security Trust Fund. That is not going to help. Just let people pay into it. This is an actuarial fund, and it ought to be fully funded. Next, we need to have a different immigration policy. For all those people who are screaming and yelling about all the immigrants coming in here and screwing up the economy, look at Alabama right now where the Hispanic population is fleeing, and they are, crops are rotting but in the Howard, fields. Can, can you bring this back to, yeah. the, to the benefits? Immigrants, yeah. immigrants, immigrants contribute gra greatly to Social Security, and the illegal immigrants contribute greatly to Social Security because they have fake Social Security numbers, and they never get any of that money back, so they actually boost the fund up. It's true. And secondly... Secondly, immigration built this country because if we, have, if we only have two workers paying for or three workers paying for what 168 used to pay for because we're not keeping up with our birth rate, then let's have some more talented, hardworking people come into this country and stop beating up on immigrants. If anybody in here has Native and blood, American blood in them, they're not an immigrant. The rest of you are all immigrants, and it built this country. Let them keep building this country and keep coming. That will solve the Social Security Trust Fund problem. Margaret, will it? So, so he's just admitted that there is a Social Security trust fund problem. Ah. And I... Yeah. Ah. There is a Social Security trust fund problem. It is not imperiling Junior's future. It is good for Junior's future to have Social Security. Even if the trust fund is imperiled. We had a We're going to fix the trust fund if only the Republicans will get out so of the way. So we need to fix it. No, no, but hold on. But, 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 but what Governor Dean has just said is that it needs to be fixed. And but that is an implicit but it, agreement. I, I have some, somewhat of the same question because, because they put forward a series of uh, the word tweaks was used. And then this team stood up and used the word tweaks also. And I'm wondering where's the daylight between your tweak sets? Well, I, I, myself. I thought yeah. they were arguing our I, 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 side I, 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 when they started this. I agree with Howard Dean. 
I and agree with we need to get no, teacher service. Can, let's just get, let's just get yes, very clear about it. All right. Jeff, when you start let talking let about the Patrick. insolvency of the system, right. to most people out there, that means you will have zero benefits when the trust fund runs out. That's what insolvency means. When you use language like it's going to go bust, that means benefits are going to go down a lot. They're not going to go t down 20%. I see some people shaking their head. It doesn't mean that. They're, they're not, they're not, when you say bust, you're talking about at least 50%, 60%. It's an extreme exaggeration, number one. Number two, when we say tweaks, small increases in taxes can bring that benefit back up to 100%. Is that a tweak that you're good with? Call it, call it what you will. We had a Democratic president, Democratic control of the Senate, and Democratic control of the House, and we did nothing about these issues. When you can get any kind of mix of politics, I don't care whether they're the Republicans or the Democrats, who can really change what you're talking about changing, the tax rates, the immigration codes, you name it, I'll agree with everything you want to say. But in the meantime, these programs are in jeopardy. And everybody who has looked at it has agreed that they are in jeopardy in one form or another. And I would therefore say to you, as long as you can sort of hypothesize these unavailable, impossible programs, sure, you can find uh, other ways to solve it. But in the meantime, we're living with these programs. We haven't been able to solve it, and nobody's been able to do it since 1983. Howard Here's the problem with that argument. I, I, I agree that programs are in some jeopardy. Why? Because one side of the political eye wants them to be in jeopardy. They've never liked Social Security. They think the federal government should be drowned in a bathtub. I do not think it's fair to take away Social Security because there is an intransigent group of people in the House uh, who refuse to do anything about it at all. All right, but I just want, okay. I want to point out that your debate opponents tonight did not take that position. That's true, they, they didn't, but Mark okay. just Thank defended you. them. Is, Margaret Hoover. Straw man. Uh, to answer Jeff's question, insolvency, this inflammatory rhetoric, is not rhetoric that Mort and I made up. Insolvency is the word used by CBO, by actuaries of Social Security, and it refers to the fact that these programs will not be able to deliver on their promises by that year, 2037. Not my inflammatory rhetoric, the rhetoric of Social Security actuaries. Now, with, with Governor Dean, you've agreed that these programs are in jeopardy. To the extent that these programs are in jeopardy, you are then agreeing implicitly with the motion that those promises that have been delivered or that have been promised to Junior will not be able to be delivered upon, and therefore his future is in peril. Did she get you on that? No. What I, no. The, 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 it's my opening statement was that we don't have a Medicare and Social Security problem in this country. We have a political and an economic problem in this country because of bad leadership in both the business sphere and the government. So the, if the argument is here, Social Security and Medicare, grandma's benefits, are imperiling Junior's future, no. The political people class is imperiling Junior's future because we have a lousy group of politicians that can't get their act together. I don't think we should take that out of Grandma's hide. What we need is new politicians, not new grandmas. <laughs> Howard, I, I, I felt though that what I heard the other side saying was not they're not talking that they're not talking about wanting to they're not talking about wanting to cut Grandma's benefits now, but they're talking about wanting to cut Junior's benefits when Junior is a grandpa right. later on. They're talking no, they're about the talking future, about, are they not? All, all reforms are talking about cutting benefits. All, all reforms are talking in some way or other about cutting benefits now. We ra we've already raised the eligibility age to 67. That's going to be a 13% benefit cut. 
That's not something way down the road. That's a 13% benefit cut. Let's be honest about this. I watch television, and people, supposedly forthright people, get up there and say, why don't politicians tell us there won't be any Social Security for us? They don't get up there and say, why don't they be honest and say we're only going to get about 80% of our Social Security? The words are inflammatory and sadly misleading. We can solve the problem with modest Social Security tax increases or raising the cap. And, 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 and let me talk a little bit about Medicare, Howard's forte, because uh, Margaret brought up the fact that this is some kind of side issue. Why do we think Medicare is going to go off the rails? It's not the aging issue. Because if it were the aging issue, they would by and large rise to the same proportion of GDP as Social Security did. It's that health care costs are rising very rapidly. And I guess we have to repeat this over and over again. Rising health care costs can undo Medicare and Medicaid down the road, not the next 10 years, but well down the road, unless we have very, very serious reform. And okay. that is not a side Let's issue. Let's bring Margaret Hoover. I agree with you. I believe we agree with you that rising health care costs are, are very, very important and one of the driving, driving predictors in long-term spending of these, prob of these problems. The, the issue here, though, is about benefits. And Medicare and Medicaid are health care benefits. And to the extent that health care costs are careening out of control and must be reformed, this is, again, an implicit affirmation of the motion that benefits are imperiling Junior's future. I, I would disagree. Howard Dean. I, I, think, I think, in fact, you just affirmed our side of the, of the motion, which is the negative <laughs> side. The, the fact is, it isn't the benefits. It's the system. If you capitated everybody's care. It's the same thing. No, if, it is certainly not the same thing. What I get in benefits has nothing to do with how I pay for those benefits. The problem is not the benefits that grandma's getting. The problem is the way we pay for health care in this country. You couldn't be in the automobile industry. Here's what would happen if the automobile industry were funded the way health care was. I would, if I were Ford Motor, I would make 10 million cars a minute if I could because I'd get paid for every single one of them. This is an insane system. There's no, the economic system doesn't work. You have to get rid of the fee-for-service system. And you have to have a global budget, capitated care system, which Obama, and actually in Obama's plan, it's possible to do this because he's created these integrated networks. And if you pay them a fixed amount of money, let the professionals and get the insurance companies out of it. Let the professionals and the patients figure out how they so, want to spend so those Margaret, dollars. But how, they how don't get any additional that, dollars. That paying and the benefits are not the same thing. So let me go to the question, question of, of Medicare benefits. Do you, do you see the need to actually reduce the, the the level of benefit. No, I, that, I, I, that share, I share the view just expressed. I want to completely redo the health care system, the medical profession, how they get paid, and, and fee-for-services, change the whole hospital system, revolutionize the whole thing. And I'm ready, as soon as that is done, to take the same approach that you're talking about with respect to health care and Social Security. However, until then, and in the, the slight possibility, even when you were chairman of the Democratic Party, that you weren't able to institute this in this country, in the slight possibility that that will not happen, let's find something to have a fallback position, just in case we can't revolutionize the country. Uh, Margaret, can you take on the, that question of whether you're actually advocating a reduction in the benefits, the, the stuff you get from the doctor? The care. I actually.
actually, in one sense, agree with Governor Dean. I agree that the health care system needs to be reformed so that medical costs come down, because I agree with the premise that it is medical costs that are careening out of control. I think Governor Dean and I have dramatically different ideas about how we would contain Right, but I think they're saying that what – I think what they're – the words they're putting in your mouth is saying what I'm putting into the question is that you're actually suggesting that people have – there's too much care. They're getting too much great medical stuff and that that needs to be reduced as well, well as the cost. In some sense in the medical profession, there is too much care because the fee-for-service you have uh, – Mort has written about tort reform. You have uh, – you have uh, moved patients away from the marginal cost of their health care. And as a result, because they, they don't know, there's no transparency, they don't know how much they're buying, paying for services. In addition, doctors are constantly checking boxes to cover their uh, CYA sort of movement so that they uh, don't get sued. Uh, you have an enormous amount of spending in health care that is unnecessary. I have to differ with you? that. Um, the fact is that incentives work. We just have bad incentives. The reason that health care costs are going up at ten times, uh, three times the rate of inflation is not because uh, tort reform and all these other problems. It's because we get paid to spend more money. Let's say you're a, health, uh, a hospital executive. Right now, under the present system, you're going to hire as many cardiologists who do catheterization and get as many MRI machines as you can because they're huge profit centers. And you're going to hire as few nurse practitioners and internists as you can because they don't make you any money. We need exactly the opposite. We have an illness system here, not a wellness system. That's the problem with our health care system. And, and so it, it actually incur I don't think most doctors do this, but I, some hospital executives, I know people who work in ERs where the CEO goes through once a month to boost up morale and says, by the way, we're a little short upstairs. You've got to admit a few more people. This is insane. You do not have to reduce even the quality of care. We've got to start keeping people well and have the money go to people who are trying to stay well and doctors and hospitals are trying to keep people well. We're not talking about cutting benefits Mort because benefits are not the problem. It's the way we pay for health care. Mort Zuckerman. Yeah, no, but what you're saying, if, if the current system, and I couldn't agree with you more about uh, uh, the fee-for-services because it's counter to everything you wanted. You, get, you, you pay for more, not for better right. in that system. And I agree with that, okay? All I'm saying to you is that it is almost impossible for me to imagine that you're going to change that, at least within my lifetime and maybe within the lifetime of junior. Um, and I have a couple of young juniors. I just don't see that happening. I hope it does. But I don't know what it's going to take. All I can say is I'll give you an example. Tort reform in New York State. A whole group of us try to get a cap on... Uh, damages of $250,000 as a maximum for tort liability and medical issues. We couldn't get it. But if we had gotten it, we would have saved $600 million a year in New York State alone just for the hospitals. Now, it's almost impossible to get these things done. In the meantime, I want to make sure that the health care system or the, the pay, Medicare and Medicaid and the Social Security system do not break the bank and do not destroy the future of this country. When we are able to change those other things, I'll agree with you. Jeff, Mad Jeff, Jeff Madrick. We have to, I have to make one point very clear. When you reduce Medicare benefits, you tend, except in rather narrow ways, you tend to raise health care expenditures for the rest of the country. One example, President Obama considered agreeing to raise the eligibility age of the Medicare from 65 to 67. From my point of view, an outrageous move. Kaiser Family Foundation did a study about that. What happens? Those 66 and 67-year-olds need insurance somewhere else. On average, to simplify, the insurance they will pay for or their employers will pay for, 
pay for, or the new health exchanges will pay. The price will go up. America will pay more in health care with those kinds of reforms unless we believe in triage, unless we simply say 66 and 67-year-olds, which is probably what the insurance companies would like to hear, Let's not bother getting health insurance for them. And that includes the Ryan plan. It raises health care expenditures. So this is a difficult issue. To cut back Medicare benefits significantly affects the entire health care system. Mar Keep Margaret, that in mind. Margaret, I'm a little confused about something. In the same way that you feel that you got Howard to admit that the system is imperiled if things don't change, I think they're getting you to admit that it's pretty fixable that there's stuff you can do and you fix it and it'll be okay again. I actually agree with that. So, I, I just so where do you, where, where's, so, where's the dividing line between these two teams? I mean, I just, I just think that we're arguing this notion of benefits and Medicaid and Medicare are benefits. And, and the way these benefits are structured are imperiling Junior's future. And I think they're saying the same thing, but they're trying to say it's not the benefit, it's the health care. Benefits are the really, health care. Really you cannot cut the benefits without raising health care, Medicare, health care expenditures overall. I just gave the Kaiser Family Foundation an example. They said it would raise health care spending in America by twice as much as it would save Medicare. That imperils Junior's future. If right, you I'd have like to go to some questions from the audience now. And remember, um, when the mic comes to you, please stand up and state your name. And um, please ask a question and try to keep it on topic to move along a uh, discussion towards uh, conclusion of our motion. And right down in front, uh, yeah, uh, there's the closest person to you. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you could stand up and state your name. And we, we just want to give the camera a moment to find you, and it has. Yes, um, my name is Reba Shemansky, and I have two quick solutions to the problem. You get rid of the I, way... I, I, I really would like to ask you to ask a question. I'd like them to comment. That is my question. Uh, you, <laughs> okay, you, phrase you, it so that it's a question. remove the wage cap, which now stands at $106,800 on the FICA tax, and have wealthy people pay the same percentage as everyone else, Social Security would be overflowing with revenue for the next 100 years. Two, if... You don't take into consideration the fact that if the unemployment rate ever went down, again, there would be a big surge in revenue. For Medicare, the one easy solution would be for the federal government to negotiate with drug companies, and that would bring down uh, drug prices, and that also would save okay. Medicare costs. Also, oh, no, 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 no. I, I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to stop you there because I asked for 30 seconds. Thank you. Thank you. And then at the end of that, you can say, isn't that right? Maurice Ackerman. No, I mean, look, there are all kinds of different programs, uh, including some of them that are implicit in your question or comments. Uh, and the real problem is you have to weigh the probability of getting some of those things done. I wish we could get them done, frankly. I wish we could get tort liability. I wish we could change fee for services. I wish we could change the, the, the whole system. I wish, I mean, I have here a little cartoon from The New Yorker, just to show you. This is a two, two policemen uh, uh, interrogating uh, Bernie Madoff. The lights are shining on him, and the 
cop says, all right, Madoff, where did you get the idea of paying early investors with money from late investors? He says, from the Social Security system. <laughs> now, all I'm saying is... Wow. Uh, they're, they're, are, are you running for president are, from to, Texas? We have to look at these things. We have to look at these things and make them as self-sustaining financially as possible. You can't revolutionize the whole country to solve this problem because it'll never get done. And we will not necessarily go broke in a total sense, but we, as a country, we will end up in a very, very different kind of path. Howard Dean. You know, it will get done, and it is getting done. And, of course, it, it, these folks on the right are going to be horrified to hear me say this, but, in fact, it's happening in the private sector. Government never leaves. The private sector is already – you have Kaiser – you have Geisinger, which is going to be the model for the Vermont single payer that we're trying to put in. There are, the private sector today is figuring out how to do capitated care and how to pay uh, hospitals and doctors differently because the current system doesn't work. Again, let me emphasize, the title of this debate is to grant, resolve that grandma's benefits endanger generous, uh, junior's future. They do not. It is political bad management. It is political intransigent. It is bad economic management, but it's not grandma's benefits. And the private sector is doing something about it right now. Eventually, the government will figure it out. Gentlemen on the aisle in the Argyle sweater. And, and I, I encourage you to, to improve upon the question model. I'll, I'll do my best with all due respect. My, uh, to the person who spoke earlier, my name is Mark Turner. Enough. Uh, I think tonight uh, and every night when you turn on the uh, tube, you can see that we have the intelligence to have this debate, but I believe our politics dummy us down. So my question is, is there a play on history going on here? In 1980, during the Reagan Revolution, after there was a discussion about Social Security, in 19, by 1982, the public had spoken, many grandmas and grandpas voted, and it got Reagan and Tip O'Neill to sit down. So maybe we should expand the table and have more juniors at the table so that their voice is going to be part of this democratic process. Margaret, exactly Margaret Hoover is our junior representative. Here to see if, in fact, Excuse they'll me. channel the past and, and go for politicians <laughs> who promise us a pot, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Okay. I don't think All right. For that. You were good at the question, Thanks Mark. Thanks for the Hoover reference, too. Yeah. There. <laughs> I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. Juniors do need to be part of this uh, uh debate, and the one thing that really characterizes the millennial generation is a desire to be part of the solution. But I will say, when we talk about this compromise that happened with Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan in 1983, we have to remember, too, they were months away from seniors not getting their benefit checks. So one of the things I worry about is that politicians need their next election to be hanging in the balance before they can actually be mobilized to do anything. Howard, would you like to comment on that as yeah, well? I actually think that's exactly right. But, again, that's a systemic problem, not a benefit problem. Um, and, I, I, and I'm really in favor of getting millennials to have their place at the table, and I'm incredibly glad that they're down sitting on Wall Street right now. Uh, the woman in the green sweater is standing up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Chloe Heinz, and I was just wondering if we could elaborate a little bit on what it would look like if we were creating healthier seniors, uh, if the people who are my age and Margaret's age and under the age of the, the beneficiary um, line, what, that, what those benefits would look like, because I feel like the pool would be depleted at a much slower rate, and I see that point being made. So I'm wondering if we can clarify a little bit on the distinction between the health care and the benefits, because I see that happening, but it seems like it's getting muddled up in rhetoric. If you the fact is, health care has improved dramatically, and that's why longevity has improved so dramatically. 
So we are, in fact, seeing a totally different aging of the population. We had something really unique, which is that there were baby boomers. We have 79 million of them coming into this system over the next several years without going to the exact number. Their benefits alone will add $3 trillion a year to this thing. We've got to find some way to make that still viable. I don't disagree with anything you're saying in one sense, which is that we can improve the health care system without question. And we are approving it, and all kinds of benefits are coming from it, longevity being the, the first one. Uh, when we, uh, the original idea of, of, of health care was not necessarily to, uh, I mean, of a Social Security, was not necessarily to provide retirement income for people to the ages of 90, whatever that, that uh, uh, new longevity will take us to. When that was passed, uh, the, the, as I said, the median age was 62. Well, that, that was the median uh, longevity. We're now at 80. Howard, There's nothing wrong with taking that into account. Howard. I'll just be um, very quick about this. What your health care would look like is people would begin investing in your wellness at your age so that you wouldn't be diabetic, having dialysis, and advanced atherosclerotic heart disease when you got to be my age. And so the whole, Ken, capitated care gives a financial impetus and incentive to take care of all the people in the system when they're young so they don't use up more money when they're older. Now, I'm not going to get into this. End-of-life care is another area, and I'm not going to get into this in a big way because it takes a lot of time. But the truth is most seniors will make the right end-of-life decisions, but right now hospitals and doctors are incentivized to stick as many tubes as they possibly can and let the as you're going out the door. All you've got to do for that to fix that is not have death panels like Sarah Palin was talking about. Just turn the decisions back to the seniors by living wills and durable power of attorneys, and I hope everybody in this room has one. I, I, okay. John, can I say something? Yeah, just. Uh, I, I, re I really I, I hope the, the debate and what you take away from it can stick to the facts. Yes, there is greater longevity. As big a problem for the Social Security system has been the fact that wages haven't grown and that there's inequality in America. When wages don't grow, people put in less money into the Social Security system. When there's inequality, a lot more people are above the cap. That woman was correctly talking about. Even saying that, however, let me repeat what I said at the outset. Here are the simple numbers for all the inflammatory language about the number of people who are getting old and longevity and the trillions of dollars and so forth. Social Security is going up from 5% to 6% of GDP. And, ma'am, you are correct. We could solve that problem merely by eliminating the cap. Mar Margaret Hoover has a look on her feasible. face that, that I... Merely by eliminating the cap, we would not have any deficit in the future. Margaret. I, I just, I, I, it seems to me as though you're setting up this false choice, saying, you know, we don't need to save Social Security. Six percent of GDP is nothing. Now, six percent of GDP is, is more than $800 billion, less than $900 billion. That's not nothing. And for an economy that is $14 trillion in debt, it's, it's the Ben Franklin saying, if you mind your pennies, the dollars will, the dollars will take care of themselves. Uh, so, so this notion that we can just sort of ignore one and, and just take well, it, it is just fiscally irresponsible. It's simple, uh, neither Howard nor I nor I think Mark nor even you suggest that we should ignore the problem. We are saying the fix is not dramatic for Social Security. I don't think I'm even, I, I think I said enough on that. Um, 
Sir, uh, you're wearing a black turtleneck and you're in the dark. If you could come down a few steps just so the cameras can see in the light. A few more steps so that I can see as well. That's great. Thanks. Sir. My name is Dan Tyus, and I heard uh, Governor Dean say that there was more than $2 trillion in the trust fund for Social Security. And Mr. Madrick said that there never was a trust fund, and it was always pay as you go. It seems that there's a fundamental disagreement between the two of you. Could you clarify which of the two statements yeah. is correct? It's basically a technical issue. We've been collecting a lot more. Uh, we've been collecting a lot more payroll taxes than we've had to pay out. That should be a surplus in the system. A trust fund. It's become IOUs from the federal government. People thought there should be a lockbox. The federal government should never be able to spend that money. The federal government did spend that money and gave this trust fund debt. Is the federal government ever going to renege on that debt? If it reneges on that debt, it's going to renege on a whole lot of debt, and we have much bigger problems. We would have much bigger problems. So it's really just a technical issue. A rejoinder from yeah. this side? Well, let me just More say, seconds. when Reagan and Tip O'Neill got together and restructured Social Security, we had something like $25 million in that trust fund. It's now up to about $2.6 uh, trillion, and it'll be about $3.1 trillion before we have so many more people receiving it than paying into it that that money is basically going to disappear, and it disappears according to the best actuarial judgments at this point in 2036 or 2037. The whole idea is to find some way to keep that, in a sense, viable and liquid and not insolvent. Uh, so I think that's basically what we're talking about. If you don't do anything about it, now it's very nice to say let's find some other way to deal with it, but frankly, uh, we've done it 40 times, okay? So I don't see that this is a, a great issue here, and I agree, uh, let's lift the cap so that the wealthy pay more, et cetera, et cetera. But we've got to keep it solvent, and we've got to keep it solvent for a long period of time for a lot of elderly people. Ma'am, um, yeah, uh, no, I'm sorry, go back, go back uh, two rows, thanks. That's right. Hi, my name is Barbara Title. Can you hold the mic a little closer to me? Yes, my Thanks. name is Barbara Title. Up until 10 years ago, the uh, age where you could have earned unlimited earnings and still collect unemployment was 70. 10 years ago, they reduced that. Why? I think 10 years ago, at 65 or 66, you can earn unlimited money and still collect your Social Security. I, I think that's probably a technical question that's off the topic of, that uh, we're trying to get to at the moment. Know, Unless, was, Jeff, you want to take it. Was just it? one of many reforms that have reduced Social Security benefits. People keep talking about the Reagan-O'Neill agreement. The Reagan-O'Neill agreement cut benefits. It used to be that 50, in, the, okay. in that period, 52% Social Security replaced 52% of pre-retirement income. So you're saying it's and a little replaces it's a, it's a, This is an average number. Jeff, you're saying it's a little dose of what this side is recommending be done. It's a little dose. Uh, yes, it's a little dose of what that side is recommending. They also raised. Do, do you? They also raised payroll taxes significantly. All right. So since, so we're, since a, we have a good example, thank you for that question, Ma'am. Is, we is that a, is that uh, brought to your side fairly? Well, I, I, we had not, uh, frankly, addressed that particular issue. What we are saying is there's got to be some combination of factors that has to make this system viable for a much longer time than it currently is. And we think that's important. We've done it many times in the past. There's no problem, in my judgment, no overwhelming problem in doing it now. It is true on the health care side that you have a, a real problem of the health care system. That is so difficult to do. In the meantime, it seems to me, we've got to make sure that these, these various programs do not go bust or, in, in fact, put such a, a burden of debt on this country 
that will simply not be able to spend the money on so many other things, whether it's education or infrastructure or police or whatever you have to do. And that it's just going to drain it. And in fact, if you go from 5% of GDP to 13% of GDP, which is where our health care costs are driving, driving us, you're going to take a huge amount out of what we otherwise need for the kind of country that we'd like to think Margaret, we're do you want to add to that? Yeah. I, 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 what seems to be agreed upon here, and what Jeff just said too, was that the fix is easy. We know what the fix is. And it's true. CBO has scored 30 different fixes for Social Security. But then if we agree that there needs to be a fix, we agree that there's a problem. And we agree that grandma's benefits are imperiling Junior's future. Well, let me, if I may, we agree that there needs to be a fix and we agree that there is a problem. But the problem is not grandma's benefits. It's the idiots in Washington that won't fix it. And we should not, and we should not cut grandma's benefits because we have an incompetent political class. That's what we need. Let's, let's not reframe this thing. This is not about grandma's benefits. It's about getting people who will get stuff done in Washington and cut out the nonsense. Well, our actually, fix, the motion does our, say grandma's benefits. Our fix, Margaret, um, I just, I framed it wrong. Okay, go ahead, Jeff. I, our fix, Margaret, is increasing taxes because we think it's a low-tax nation. The earlier fixes were reducing benefits with significant increases in taxes as well. So we have a difference. We're not saying that Social Security will not have a shortfall. We're, we are avoiding this inflammatory rhetoric about it's going bust and longevity is doing it all and all that kind of thing. We want I, to have to, I have to do something for radio, this. which is one of those times when I, wanna, I, I need to read something twice, once with your um, enthusiastic and spontaneous applause. <laughs> At the beginning, so if you could do a round of applause, I'm going to do my line, and then, and I'll, not yet, and then I'll do the line again without your applause. So if you could give a round of applause, that'd be great. Thank you. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing out this motion: Grandma's benefits imperil Junior's future. Thank you. Now I'm going to do it again. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Two teams, two members, two against two, arguing out this motion, Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future. Okay, back to questions. Thank you for that. That was great applause. Sir, right? I'm looking right at you. And just wait for the mic to come. I think uh, Mr. Zuckerman began to touch on this, but um, the debate is largely centered on fairness and uh, solvency, but um, I was wondering if, uh, if somebody could speak um, a bit more about the, the long-term economic impact in, ter in terms of if you spend money on, on these entitlement programs, that's money that's not going to be spent somewhere else. And for example, the Fermilab just had the plug pulled on it last week and President Obama is trying desperately to get more infrastructure spending. Um, so I guess my, my question is, or well, your question, uh, your question is, request is, can we discuss the, the sure. long-term economic impact of would, not would be, having that spending? Would it be fair to say you're asking whether the programs are going to be a drag on the economy, on growth, and thus on productivity? Future. Okay, let's put that to the side, arguing. Uh, absolutely not. In fact, a, it's a huge boost. So Florida, for example, economy is essentially built on Social Security. This is, this is, these are, what these are... No, this is true. This is the multiplier effect. What these are is transfer payments. 
They are transfer payments to people who otherwise wouldn't be spending money. Every dime that goes into Social Security gets spent because these folks are, who are depending on Social Security have to spend everything in order to, to, uh, to survive and to live. And so it, it, this, it creates all kinds of multiplier effects wherever they are. That's why people like retirees living in their state. They don't use much in the way of services other than health care, which is mostly paid for by the feds, and they don't have any kids in the schools and so forth and so on. So in fact, these so-called transfer entitlement programs are big boosts to the economy and not drags at all. Uh, let's hear the other side respond to that. Interesting point. Well, I, I think that is true. The point that I would make, though, is that uh, when people are paying the Social Security taxes, it's when they're working. We're trying to protect that system for the people when they retire. It is certainly true that when they retire, this being in, in most cases their only source of income, they're going to spend it. And I'm just as happy to have people, when they're working, contribute more to the system to make sure that it is viable. Okay. Um, down front, you've been very patient. If you can stand up, and the mic's coming to you. Uh, no, no, no uh, I'm sorry. I'm not, you're going to have to be even more patient. I meant in the third row. <laughs> Sorry, sir, but uh, if you could stand up. Hi there. My name is whoops. Oops. My name is Alice Silverman, and I am a grandma who is very concerned about my juniors and my juniors' juniors, some of whom live in Burlington, Vermont. Yes. By the way. <laughs> so my and question. they have health care. <laughs> my question for the evening is how um, you all get to speak with your respective. Um, team members, so to speak, and continue to have them as reasonable and cooperative as the four of you seem to be tonight, so that we can really get some things done here. How can we love each other more? Well, I'm going to take that as more that. of an aspirational statement than a question, because I think we take your point right next to you, yeah. Um, Hillary Cecil Jordan. Uh, my question is, you seem to all agree that what's germane to the debate is politics not working. And I just wonder, and this isn't going, I don't think, too far from the debate, is our politics as intransigent as the healthcare system? And what do you suggest be done? Everybody blames everything on politics. Well, the reason I think that's a relevant question is because, Howard, you, you have made the case repeatedly, and, and you also, Jeff, that there need to be basic changes in the way we do things. And, and um, Moore keeps coming back saying that would be great if we could do that, but he's saying it's politically impossible. So, so th that's kind of a little bit of a strike against your position if Mort is right, that the things you're talking about just can't be done politically. So can you take that on? But, you know, the things Mort is talking I, I mean, is Mort just throwing up his hands and going to go back to Canada? The things that Mort is suggesting be done can't be done politically either, as far as I can hear. If he has any solutions for this that are politically viable now, more politically viable than our side, please speak up more. Here's your chance. Well, I, I do think that uh, the notion of changing fee-for-services, which I'm totally in favor of, or trying to get uh, a cap on medical tort liability, which I'm totally in favor of, I, th I can't imagine how that's going to happen for a very long time. I do think we still, in the interim, can in introduce some modest changes to the Social Security system, which we've been doing since the initiation of that program. And they did it, as I said, in 1983. What it will take to answer the question is political leadership. 
And that's what we don't have and haven't had for years, who really, people who really want to address this because they feel they're going to lose votes in one place or another. And that's the sad part. We have a system. In Canada, for example, they're doing it very differently. Margaret Hoover. And, and it's really working with a different kind of political leadership and a different kind of political system. Margaret. We don't have that. Margaret. So, and we agree in, in many ways on what the problems are. Fee-for-service, Governor Dean agrees with us that fee-for-service is a problem, though we have dramatically different ideas about how to address that. And I, I think you're right that our politics have, have become so polarized that you cannot simply come to the table admitting that there are going to be principal differences and figure out how to, how to work it out. And the political game and the bomb-throwing has made touching Medicare or Social Security a third rail for anyone who tries to take it on. Look what's happened to Paul Ryan, who puts forth a plan that you might not like, but he puts down a plan that goes to the trouble of getting it scored by CBO. And the next thing we know, there's a, you know, a, a commercial of him throwing grandma off a cliff. Howard Dean. That's nuts. Well, actually, I thought that was fairly accurate. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to problem. stifle my partisan side here. Look, um, I, I'm, I'm by, by nature um, optimistic, and I agree that the, we can discuss for a long time what's the matter with the political leadership. I do think elections have a way of eventually fixing that problem. I think the private sector is going to do it, and I'll tell you why. Because of the Obama health care plan, which I was not a big supporter of, but which does have some good things in it, there is a real opportunity in the private sector, and I'll tell you what it is. If you have a totally vertically um, a vertically integrated system like Kaiser, for example, or Geisinger, they can now sell their product outside an insurance agency. When they go on the exchanges, which are going to be in place in 2014, you are now going to have people competing with insurance companies to keep prices low. The other great thing about this bill is that the exchange is basically a transparent way of buying insurance. Private the Democrats go crazy when I say this, but the truth is small business is going to dump all their people into the exchanges. That is a great thing because now individuals are going to go into the marketplace and choose their own insurance with some government subsidy. And the, that, that is market, market forces that work. Okay. And an integrated system will beat an insurance company every single time. Let me go to the front row for this gentleman I passed over before. Hello, my name is David, and I believe I fit into the junior generation. And I was just really worried about a statistic that Mr. Madrick brought up. Um, he said that when I retire, so like when I'm 75 or whatever, when I qualify for Social Security, um, if, I will... If, Mar if Martin Margaret get their way, you probably won't get Social Security until you're 75. <laughs> All right. Well, um, uh, when I do get my Social Security payments, I was told that I would only get 78%, I believe it was, of my benefits. But when you subtract, when you deduct basically all the expenses I would normally be paying when I'm receiving 100% of my benefits, how much would I have left of that 78%? Well, I agree with that. That's why I think we do have to raise taxes and get, up, get it up to 100%. I'm not sure our opponents are talking about maintaining the same level of benefits. I think they are talking about reducing well, those benefits I mean, without that, quite That sort of does that. get to the bottom line. Are you talking about maintaining the same level of benefits that we have today? Absolutely. You, without you a are. question, I'm, nobody suggested cutting the benefits. Uh, frankly, if there would be any benefits cut, I would cut them for the, for the well-to-do. Uh, but uh, So I would put in an income standard for that. But on all the other benefits, absolutely not. What we're trying to do is to make it possible for us to afford 
to continue to paying those benefits. And so I'm just going to go to one issue because this is a chance for me to say it, even though it's not relevant. Um, if Bill Clinton has a wonderful idea for how you deal with uh, health insurance, private health insurance, where in most states, one or two companies really dominate the entire health insurance in that state. He said, you just put in one line into their policy, mandated, that 85% of the premiums they receive go to health care benefits, and the rest of it, only the rest of it, can go to promotion and profits. And he said, you'd have a major improvement in that. Well, fine, I'm ready to sign on to that. I'm just, any time you get, when I'm president, the first appointed Canadian Jewish president, I'm willing, <laughs> I'm willing to sign that legislation. Here's a man I want to ask. I, you, 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 and you've been shaking your head dramatically. Yeah, you, you look very, very frustrated by things you're hearing. And I, I want to see that unleashed in the form of a 30-second question. My name is Roger Karlbach, and I heard Mr. Zuckerman say he's willing to have increases in taxes, maybe doing through the caps rather than the rates. And he's willing to do other things. But I don't know if the Republican National Broadcasting representative is willing to raise <laughs> revenue at all. She's been quiet. So let me put it to her. Okay. Can, can, you, can you correct your approach to Margaret Hoover? Yeah. We, we, like to, we like to keep it pretty civil. Okay. Thank you. It seems to me that this intergenerational thing with uh, the sponsor of the thing, his introduction was less impartial than it has been in the past. He kind of was shilling for this side and... I, I, I thought that wasn't right. Okay. Not a question. Um, I'm going to take one more. Um, do we have time for one more? Yeah. Right behind, right behind our executive producer. Hi, my name is Deanna Oliver. I'm a student at NYU. I have a question for you, Governor Dean. In the introduction of your opening statement, you claimed that there isn't, in fact, a social security trust fund problem. However, it, there's a problem with political collaboration and our economical stance right now. Um, so if we are to lack progress in either of those areas, which both sides have agreed to, and private sectors don't act on the opportunity which you claimed in your last response, does that mean that the future of the millennials will, in fact, be at risk? I don't think so, and I'll tell you okay. why. I think the millennials are – people have often asked, should we have term limits in the United States Senate? I said, no, but we shouldn't allow anybody over 50 to serve in the United States Senate. That would solve the problem. You guys are – you've elected your first president, and now you're going to eventually take the reins of power. You are not a confrontational generation. You focus – there's much less ideological bandwidth among your generation than there is in mine. And I actually think you are going to get to some solutions, which as soon as us older – the political class is always the last to get it. And as soon as these guys pass on to someplace else with their, which their, their deserved reward, you guys are going to be running the Senate, and you guys are actually going to sit down across what minimal ideological lines you have and get something done. So this is going to get fixed. I'd just like to see our generation own up to it and fix it and stop yapping at each other so we'd not have to leave it up to you. And Margaret Hoover. I, I would just say uh, – I. On the one hand, I completely agree with Governor Dean. On the other hand, you're the one who just said Paul Ryan pushed Grandma over the cliff. He so did. you've resembled, but you're resembling this uh, this partisanship that is polarizing the debate and not letting us get to the solution for millennials are trying to get to. And um, and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. 
Um, we're about to hear closing statements from each debater in turn. The closing statements will be two minutes each. And remember how you voted before the debate, because immediately afterwards you will vote again. So this is their last chance to change your mind. So on to round three, closing statements. And first to speak against our motion, which is Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future. Jeff Madrick, author of The Age of Greed, The Triumph of Finance, and The Decline of America from 1970 to the Present. Grandma's benefits do not, am I on? Grandma's benefits do not imperil Junior's future. The main reason is we have so much room to raise taxes without impeding economic growth that we can handle the so-called, not the so-called, the social security debt. What I meant was the so-called social security insolvency uh, relatively easily. Medicare is not a problem for 10 or 12 more years, and we do, as Governor Dean and I think Mark Zuckerman and maybe Margaret agree, we have to reform that system. I am obliged to say something about Paul Ryan's plan. Just because he had it scored by CBO and won, uh, the, won some plaudits in the media does not mean it was not an extremist plan. It meant triage. It meant literally triage for Medicare recipients down the road. It meant they wouldn't get covered. Keep one fact in mind, because in the end, I think what's generating our opposition's ire, and I'm having a, is that we have big deficits in America. If we reversed the Bush tax cuts, I mean not only on the top 250, but for everybody, we would solve the deficit problem for the next 10 years. The deficit, the debt in America would not rise above approximately 70% of GDP. These are CBO numbers, not my numbers. They would be, we would be in what's called primary surplus. So you see how much latitude we have to take care of these problems without jeopardizing economic growth. And it's economic growth that the young need because that's what creates jobs for the young. Thank and you, Jeff And we've fouled that up badly so far. Thank you. Your time is up. Jeff Madrick. Our motion is Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Futures. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Mort Zuckerman, Chairman and Editor-in-Chief of U.S. News and World Report. Well, just about every serious uh, review of the benefits uh, in broad terms of entitlement programs, uh, in part because of the problems that uh, the governor mentions, which is the problems in our health care system, which are much more intractable than dealing with the entitlement programs' uh, financial problems. Uh, virtually everybody says we've got to do something about that. Now, the question is, if you had to make a pragmatic judgment as to what you could do about it, I have to say to you that some of the proposals that are put forth by the other side are uh, about as likely um, as, um, well, you name it, as uh, Governor Dean becoming president. Um, and no, and I, 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 believe me, I've been a Democrat all my life. I would have supported him had he got the nomination, but he did not get the nomination. At this stage of the game, he's not in that political um, move. But I, I would just say to you that these are very, very serious, serious times for us. This country is on the verge of losing a great deal of the economic energy that it has had, in part because of the failures of our political system. But we have to deal at least with those programs, it seems to me, that protect the elderly. 
And this is something I'm totally in favor of. I opposed the Bush tax cuts when they came about. I supported reinstating the uh, tax uh, levels uh, when uh, other Democratic presidents reintroduced some of the Bush tax cuts. I didn't uh, support that. But whatever it is, we've got to do something about these programs or else, in fact, the burdens that they are going to imply in terms of the deficit that this country is going to have to undertake in order to deal with these programs is going to do immense damage to the very future of the people that we're talking about. We call them junior, but I'll tell you what, whoever they are, they, their cohorts, their, their younger siblings, their older siblings, they're all going to pay the price, and it's going to be a huge price in terms of what their future is. So my view is take the most, in a sense, the simplest way to solve it, even though there are other solutions. I don't disagree with that. That's much more difficult to do. I hope we can reform the Thank medical you. system. We Thank you. Your time's up. Thank you. Our motion is Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future, and here to summarize his position against this motion, Howard Dean, former chairman of the Democratic National Committee and longest-serving governor of Vermont. Well, first of all, let me say we're going to take this fight to North Carolina, and then we're going to Michigan, and then we're going to South Carolina, and then we're going to... Oh, pardon me. Excuse me. First of all, I'm, I'm heartened by the agreement among us. Uh, I, we've really put up a lot of the positions that I think if, if the four of us could sit down for four and a half hours, I bet we could solve all these problems as long as we didn't have any problems like the Senate and the presidency and the House to interfere with us, which actually means that we agree on the substance that this is a solvable problem. And what is standing in the way of the problem? Is it grandma's benefits or is it a political problem? The framing of, of the opposition who doesn't like any kind of government is that this is a benefit problem. This is not a benefit problem. This is a governmental failure problem and an economic failure problem. So we have a broad agreement and some disagreement about how we can fix these problems. But we don't have to go through those because there's so much agreement here. The question is how are we going to fix this? Is Mort right when he says, well, we can't do this tomorrow? We can't do it if we rely on politicians to do it tomorrow. But the hallmark of this millennial generation is to cast aside the political process and just do it. Do it locally. Do it in the private sector. Do it any way you can. So I conclude that grandma's benefits do not endanger Junior's future. What endangers Junior's future is a failure of our political system to work properly, a failure of people at the top of both the economic and government fields to take full responsibility for a great country. I have no doubt that the millennial generation will restore that greatness. But in the meantime, I think it is very important for us not to scapegoat particular groups, whether it's seniors or immigrants or Muslims or gays or whatever it is. We ought to put an end to scapegoating politics and focus on the real problem, which is how we treat each other and not grandma's benefits. Thank you, Howard Dean. Our motion is grandma's benefits in peril Jr.'s future. And here to summarize her position in support of the motion, Margaret Hoover, author of American Individualism, How a New Generation of Conservatives Can Save the Republican Party. So throughout our country's history, Americans have found the courage to do right by our children's future. Deep down, every American knows we face a moment of truth again. We cannot play games or put up hard choices any longer. Without regard to party, we have a patriotic duty to keep the promise of America to give our children and grandchildren a better life. Our challenge is clear and unescapable. America cannot be great if we go broke. These are not my words, 
but the words from the preamble of President Obama's National Commission on Fiscal Responsibility and Reform. This is not inflammatory language from the far right. This was a bipartisan commission by Democrat Erskine Bowles, Republican Alan Simpson, appointed by Democratic President Obama. There is broad consensus that we are on a course of fiscal disaster. Again, not inflammatory language, but language that is used broadly by Democrats and Republicans alike, embodied by this panel, more who's a Democrat and myself who's a Republican. I think Governor Dean has done fancy footwork by trying to make this about politicians and not about what the motion is about, which is that grandma's benefits, which we all agree, everyone on this panel agrees, need to be fixed and everybody has their own solutions for fixing it. That notion that they all need to be fixed is, un, it, it, it uh, confirms the motion that there is a problem with the system, that junior's benefits are imperiled. So I would just say for everyone in the audience who is in their 30s or younger, we should feel real urgency to address these problems and take on these reforms because it's about our economic future and our economic prosperity. So please vote Thank with you. us. Thank you, Margaret Hoover. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to find out which side you, our live audience here at the Skirball Center, feel argued best. Our motion is Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Future. If you go to those keypads at your seat, it's your chance to vote now. If you agree with the motion, Grandma's Benefits Imperil, do imperil Junior's Future, if you feel that was the better argued side, press number one, this side. If you feel the other side, the side arguing against the motion argued better, push number two. And if you remain or became undecided, push number three. And we will uh, lock the votes in. And I'll have the results actually in about uh, one minute and 18 seconds from now. They come very quickly. So that concludes the, the argumentation portion of the evening. And because I, I feel that all of these sides came and argued with each other uh, so respectfully, finding common ground, even as they disagreed, I think they did a terrific job. And I just want to congratulate them all for doing that. I want to acknowledge that Slate Magazine is our media partner, and this debate was being streamed live on Slate. And to everybody out in Slateland, uh, thank you very much for, for watching and for participating in this. And I also want to thank the many people who got up and asked questions, because I, I know that I set a tough standard, and it's, it takes some guts to get up and do that. And the questions actually were, were pretty good tonight and on topic. So congratulations to everybody who asked questions. So... Um, as you know, we do a series every fall and, uh, and every uh, winter and spring, and this year we're trying something new. Normally, we will we'll set up these uh, debates in the panels well in advance, but we left one blank spot deliberately this year, October 25th, uh, almost to the last minute, to, to put together a debate on a topic that was very, very much in the news and relevant. And we have chosen the topic, and, um, and it's going to be this. Congress should approve Obama's jobs plan. Uh, arguing for the motion, we have Cecilia Rouse. She is a labor economist who served on the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And her partner supporting the motion for the jobs plan is Mark Zandi, Moody's Analytics Chief Economist, who predicts, actually, that 
uh, the President's plan will add two percentage points to GDP growth and will add 1.9 million jobs. Arguing against the plan, Dan Mitchell, he is an advocate of a flat tax and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Richard Epstein, he's a law professor here at NYU, and he describes the President's plan as, quote, a mishmash of taxes, subsidies, and regulations, and he also describes it as, quote, a turgid, turgid 155-page bill. So that's going to be here and has some NYU influence, and we hope that you all take part, come down for that debate on October 25th. If you happen to be in Chicago on October 12th, we're also putting on a debate. The first time we're going to Chicago uh, for the Chicago Ideas Week Festival, um, Peter Thiel, the controversial co-founder of PayPal, who has been paying students $100,000 to drop out of college on the, on the theory that they're wasting their time in college when they could be out building businesses as entrepreneurs. Um, he's going to be headlining a debate in which the motion language actually is, too many kids go to college. So everybody get on a plane to Chicago for next week. Um, you have a full listing of this fall's debates in tonight's program and on our website and tickets are also available for purchase. All of our debates, as we've said before, can be heard on NPR stations across the nation, including WNYC here in New York, and also it can be watched on WNET's Channel 13, WLIW, and NJTV. And you can also follow Intelligence Squared on Twitter, and make sure to become a fan on Facebook, and you will receive a discount on future debates. Okay, you have heard all of the arguments. You have been asked to vote twice the motion we were listening to, Grandma's Benefits Imperil Junior's Futures. We've asked you to vote twice, once before the debate on where you stood, and again afterwards to tell us which side you feel argued best, presented the better arguments. And so here now are the final results of the two votes. Before the debate, 40% were for the motion, 24% were against, and 36% undecided. After the debate, 38% are for the motion. That's down 2%. 56% we're against, that is up 32%, and 6% are undecided, that's down 30%. The side arguing against the motion that Grandma's Benefits and Peril Junior's Future carried the day. Our congratulations to them, and thank you for me, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.